What if? What if the struggle isn't real? What if everything you've been told is impossible is actually deliciously feasible? What if you could work anywhere, travel, find your purpose, all while growing your wealth and not spending it? Welcome to the Struggle Isn't Real podcast. I'm Cody Sanchez-Baker, and and my job here is to share how normal people have self-designed their lives, relationships, jobs, and bodies. The question to ask yourself is simply this. What if it was easy? Welcome back, my friends. Pretty excited for our conversation today. It's a little bit different. You see, this story all started with a little girl named Nomi. This little girl had been through things one can hardly imagine halfway across the world. But thankfully, Nomi met Diana Mao. And Diana, instead of continuing on her her lucrative and successful track as a consultant, became the president and co-founder of Nomi Network. She saw children being sold into slavery in person in Cambodia, and she said enough. So what did she do? Well, Diana's kind of a modern day gladiator. She's an abolitionist whose mission is to ensure the complete end of human trafficking in her lifetime. So this small of frame, but not of mind human rights champion, and I on this podcast talk about the moment her life changed, how she manages international teams across multiple countries, all while contributing to Reuters, HuffPost, and being a presidential leadership scholar, how to create a nonprofit in a way that makes an impact and is sustainable. We cover everything from what makes a successful partnership to how to handle international crises. And her story's kind of the kind that gives you chills. So I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did with Diana Mao. I dare you to not be inspired too. Welcome back, friends, to another episode of the Struggle Isn't Real podcast. I'm Cody Sanchez-Baker, and as always, our goal here is to find humans who are out there striving to align their lives with purpose and passion and into something profitable. And what I find so interesting about the guests that we have today, you've already heard all the accolades about Diana Mao, president of Nomi Network, but what you haven't heard is her story on where she got to where she was today, some of the hiccups that came along the way, and on how she's making a difference, could we say, one bag at a time. So with that, Diana, I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you so much. It's so great to be here. And I Look forward to um, sharing little insights as well as just hearing more about your story too, Cody. Well, thank you. These poor guys, they've heard my story so many times. (laughs) But, um, But Diana, like, you know, how we typically run these, like I talk about is a conversation. And so when I think about your story and what I know, I could tell it. A little bit, but I'd love to hear in your words, how do you get to where you are today, where you lead this global, it's an initiative, it's a company, um, it's an awareness campaign, almost all wrapped into one, which is Nomi Network. Will you explain to us like, what brought you to be the trendsetter and advocate for women's rights that you are? What's your origin story? Yeah, no, thanks. for That's a great question. Um, well, I um, always grew up um, with a lot of exposure to international issues. Starting in um, junior high, really, I volunteered in Mexico and traveled to Egypt, worked in a garbage village. And this was more of um, my grandmother's way of exposing me to the world. Um, but 
really the connection between my passion to fight trafficking came about when I was a graduate student at NYU working on my master's and I surveyed about 300 microfinance clients, most of whom made less than a dollar a day. And it was there in a remote village that I met a single father and he had seven children. His wife has passed away from a disease uh, because of the lack of medical care and clinics in his village. And after we surveyed him, we asked his questions. Um, he offered my male colleague his youngest daughter in his broken English. And as I looked into his eyes, I could tell that it was out of desperation and not out of, um, you know, just, um, you know, a lot of cases in Cambodia where parents willingly sell their kids to feed addictions. In his case, I could tell that poverty was one of the root causes that really caused him to, um, you know, offer, try to offer his daughter what he thought would be a better life. But in reality, um, so many times in cases like this, that's where children are sold into brothels at a very young age. And that's where traffickers also prey on young girls. And so at that moment, I realized that um, there was a huge problem that I, you know, had read about. And now it was unfolding right before my eyes. And that's when I had really the will, the desire to take action was at that moment. What uh, an incredible story. Um, and I think, you know, it's really all about perspective, right? For most people that we see every day on the streets here in the U.S., let's say, this scenario is really difficult to even contemplate, right? It's so easy to get wrapped up in our life and the relativity of it, which is, you know, we get worried when we don't make as much money as we want to, or when our company doesn't grow as fast as we want to. Um, but the beauty about what you're talking about, if there's a silver lining on this very dark cloud, is, is something that um, I think everybody can learn from, which is when you align your purpose and that moment when everything changes for you, that even one person can make a huge difference. But one thing I think, Diana, that holds people back is, so say somebody else had the opportunity to see what you saw or took the opportunity to see what you saw as you did. Why do you think you felt like you could build a company about it and make change? Like what was the thought process going through your head where you said, no, I'm enough and I'm gonna make a difference? And then why know me to do it? Yeah, I think, excuse me, I'm battling a cold here. Not at all. I think for me, it was um, first the desire um, to learn. And so what I did was I didn't walk in saying, you know, I want to start uh, an organization that creates bags and opportunities for women. I started with what can I do to learn about the issue who's doing, um, who's fighting trafficking in Cambodia. And so the following year, I went back and really surveyed and learned from organizations on the ground and also test my theory of change, which was, wow, there are a lot of great artisan groups that are barely making it, living in some of these remote villages. And there's such a um, depth you know, to the work and creativity that already exists. What if we can really capture the benefits for the people locally? So that was my assumption. And then I went back the following year to test and talk to organizations and prove the concept. And that's when I started volunteering my own time. At the time, um, I was I graduated from NYU and was a business consultant working for a firm based in DC. And this was like my passion project <laughs> for, um, from 2009 into 2012. And, um, 
you know, the more that I got involved, the more that I really moved forward the plan that I had developed, I realized that this is something that there's a great need as well as people, the network behind Nomi that wants to get around it. And so Nomi um, is a girl during the serving process that I met at an underage shelter. She was only eight years old when I met her. She had been sold by her stepfather in her village and um, treated, you know, worse than an animal, um, literally caged. And so meeting her at the shelter was really a moment of just great um, kind of empowerment for me, seeing that she had gone through the healing process, was smiling again, came to greet us when we arrived at the shelter. And so I decided that, um, you know, Nomi is who we are serving and who we want to see not just um, healed, um, you know, receiving counseling, but we want her to be successful. And so Nomi is synonymous for Nomi, know my story, know my success. Oh, it's, it's incredibly touching. So, you know, for, for that moment, let's say, is she, is Nomi telling you the story about what had happened to, you, to her? Or no. how do you, what, what happened? How did you understand that this was going on in this human's life? When we uh, visited her shelter, her the shelter director was taking us around and we were visiting the site, the rooms where the girls received counseling, um, the playground where they played, their rooms, their living quarters. And so Nomi followed us uh, everywhere. She showed us her pet bunny. And so we just started asking questions to um, the shelter director about her story. And so he shared a little bit about it. And then um, shortly after, um, they sent us her case study. And so we became familiar with um, the exploitation that she had gone through. That's astounding. And so, so basically you, your business plan or, or your process was similar to a lot of entrepreneurs I hear, which is, you know, you got kind of curious, something piqued your curiosity or spoke to part of you. And as opposed to many of us that don't listen to it, you said, okay, I'm going to learn and I'm going to get curious about this. So you went and did your analysis and then you kind of tested your theory or assumptions, which I think a lot of people forget about, you know, it's not enough to just have the passion. You have to figure out if you're really understanding what's going on. Then you went and kind of tried to prove the idea right one way or the other. All of this kind of on the side while you're doing a, a business consultancy. Um, so talk to me about what was the day that you decided, okay, there's something real, real here. And I am going to leave this sort of traditional safe in a way, um, and I'm sure very lucrative and competitive field that is consulting to do this. Yeah. So my moment was, you know, realizing, wow, I'm about to burn out <laughs> working weekends, you know, having people over at my apartment, um, working until 2 a.m. during weekdays as well. And I realized, wow, I don't have a social life right now. And, you know, I was, um, I started Know Me in my early 20s. So I, I realized that I really want that balance. And so I just kind of was, you know, in my own, um, um, in the, I remember one morning just saying, you know, I can't do this anymore. Um, you know, I really need like, something to change. And so that's when we found out that um, we received a grant from the Department of State. And 
that was back in late 2011. And then 2012 in May is when I resigned from my job. And so really, um, typically the government, you know, at the time, we didn't even have a brick and mortar office yet. We had proven our concept, worked with some organizations in Cambodia and done some work there. Um, and so at that moment, I realized, wow, this is really something that I have to choose, whether I can hire someone to run the organization or um, take a leap of faith and do it myself. You know, I'd never started a nonprofit before, <laughs> mm-hmm. and I was perfectly comfortable with my uh, business consultant job and loving loving everything about it. So, so that was um, kind of my moment of having to decide, okay, do I, you know, take the risk, um, take the leap of faith? as well as challenge myself, or do I continue staying on this career path that I thought, you know, um, I would stay on for at least another five, 10 years. Um, And I decided to go with Nomi because I thought of the women that I met in Cambodia, thought of Nomi. I thought, you know, this is really not that much of a risk. I mean, I think an entrepreneur's greatest fear is failure. And I definitely had that fear of failure. I'm like, wow, if I fail, (laughs) you know, I'll have nothing. But reality, um, living in the United States, I feel extremely blessed because even if it were to fail, I have a safety net. I have family, I have friends. Whereas women in rural India, you know, when they fail, um, well, first of all, they don't have an opportunity to even try. Um, They're living off of less than 75 cents per day, living in a hut where they can be kicked out of the hut at any time with lack of potable water, no electricity. So I compared my worst case scenario with women that I met in Cambodia and India. And by far, I was like, well, my passion um, and my desire to see the change and transformation happen trumps any sort of doubt or hesitation in my mind. It's it's pretty incredible, isn't it? I um I started my well whatever you call this company that I have now. So um, where I go around and speak quite a bit to Latinos and to women about how to get into positions of power, and and I think I started it long before it was actually a physical product. But the the reason that I was able to get over the fear was similar. It was it was time spent in Mexico. Um, along the border, seeing people come through rape clinics and, you know, get separated from their families and go through things that as an American, you very rarely have to, to think about. And seeing other people who were just as intelligent as I was and just as capable and had just as many skills to offer the world, but didn't win the birth lottery like we did, here in the U.S. and weren't born with some sort of social construct and seeing what happens to them, it kind of makes you think you have a little bit of an obligation if you were given all that we've been given to do something with it, right? Because you'd hope that if roles were reversed, there would be somebody that would try to, while they rise, pull you with them. Um, So I think that's such a powerful message to have. Um, now, now, what about, talk to me about the structure. So with Nomi, you had your theories, you tested them, you found the need side hugely, obviously, in other realms across the world. But we're talking multiple time zones, multiple languages, international tariffs, taxes, um, government grants. How did you decide to create Nomi as it is? And explain the structure a little bit to those listening. Yeah, so 
my vision from the start was, wow, if we can impact 100,000 women, millions of women, um, not just one, because one, there is such power in that. We have women that now have started their own business going through our training program, earning 10,000 rupees per day in a community where the average semi-skilled laborer earns about 200 rupees. And wow. seeing that extreme success case makes you want to um, feel just empowered to see more women because with the women, you know, they're the ones investing in their children. They're the ones that now have a voice and choice in their families. And they're the ones that are cutting off the generational cycle of slavery and girls being trafficked um, for sex and labor. And so um, with that as our core mission is to provide training and job opportunities, the bags and the products we create and the partnerships that we um, decide to engage with, they all revolve their means to that end. And so we have a program office in Cambodia, capital Phnom Penh, and also in Northern India. Uh, we have our headquarter office based in New York City, where there's a team of seven of us. And then abroad, we have our program managers in both countries managing program on the ground, but also the production. So for each office, we have a production manager that works to create products. We have fashion designers that we send there to train women. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a fashion school in Phnom Penh, actually, where organizations, not-for-profit social enterprises come to our um, class, to our training site, and select the courses that they would like to take to make better products, higher quality, as well as um, really the latest design and um, you know now they're able to really access that and access that market as well. So um, you know in India it's a lot more. We're, we go a lot more deep in the community. We've issued scholarships to adolescent girls to go to medical college, to go to law school. We provide legal support. Have prosecuted, um, help prosecute some cases, murder cases, murder of children, rape of wow. children. And so we're really kind of entrenched in the community because there are really no other social service providers. Although we're providing the training and job opportunities, we're also offering a lot of peripheral services because, you know, you, um, you have to address women's barriers in order for them to even be able to come to class, in order for them to be able to even continue operating their own business. That's fascinating. And like, you know, so... I remember when I started my first business, I thought it was going to be one thing. And I was pretty sure that we were working towards creating an international investment business selling one type of product in one market. And then what I quickly learned, and I've since seen in multiple following businesses, is that the art of the pivot is so critical. That what you think it's going to be, at least in, in theory originally, often changes a bit. So... What about Nomi? Have you all had to pivot and change? And what was your biggest surprise now that you look back having created this, this company? Yeah, <clears throat> excuse me. Our biggest change, I would say, um, right now is, you know, we have been going very deep in India. And in order for us to scale, um, we have a five-year plan to reach 100,000 women. We um, have been working with, um, you know, sometimes it's helpful for entrepreneurs to take a step back and have advisors. Um, we've worked with uh, consultants from a large consulting firm to kind of look at it from a more bird's eye view, because sometimes when you're in the trenches, you um, 
you know, your perspective kind of gets pigeonholed. And so that was really helpful. And so our next, the next five years, our um, approach will be more of a medium touch in terms of the way that we deliver our training curriculum um, to women that have never, don't even know how to sign their name, uh, are totally illiterate and getting them to be employable. And so that part, we are really looking at ways where we can scale to be more efficient, also to be more effective and taking an approach to evaluate ourselves and um, the impact that we've made, you know, not just the training we've developed, but what is a true impact. And so with that, that's allowed us to also kind of shift our focus a little bit more in the way that we partner with corporations, the way that we partner with brands and how we work with them in not necessarily trying to sell products to them, but to work with them on creating more ethical products so that we're more part of the conversation earlier on as opposed to trying to push products um, that are made you know, um, by an artisan group, for example. Interesting. Well, I think, you know, one thing that, that you said that jumped out of me, I think there's two that I'd really like to dig into. I know in, in most of my businesses, the key has always been borrowing the expertise of others that have had years to perf- perfect whatever expertise they're focusing upon, as opposed to trying to learn it all yourself and thus taking years to do so. And so I'm really big on having a strategic network, whether it's business consultants that come in, whether it's engaging with humans that just have a few years on you, or whether it's engaging with leaders who can teach you um, which mistakes to avoid that we continue, I think, to see businesses fall into when we just look at it from a microcosm or like you said, in the day-to-day grind. So I'm really big on constant contact with my network and I sort of every day I'll ping some of my mentors in business whenever I'm coming across a new issue and, and ask them their perspective so that I don't get siloed. But how did you build your network in order to you know, get a grant, let's say, or in order to determine this next business step for you. Do you have a process for leveraging your network? Yeah. So um, in the early stages, um, you know, really it's just immersing myself and learning. And from that, you know, drawing human to human connections and recognizing, okay, well, I don't have an expertise in fashion, but I know that this is a need. So that's how I connected with the first, um, the second co-founder of Nomi, who happened to be a buyer for Saks Fifth Avenue for 10 years and was looking at a transition in her career as well. So, um, you know, a lot of it, some of it is very divine in the way that networking works out. You know, sometimes you never know who you'll meet. And then once you have this human-to-human connection and your values are aligned, I find it most important to have values alignment, mission alignment, and that connection. And that's usually when I will, people are memorable and I realize, oh, wow, I want to be in touch with this person, not just, you know, once a year at this conference, but I really like to be in touch with this person on a regular basis to be on my kind of my personal board and Nomi's board and Nomi's advisory board. So I start kind of thinking um, ways that perhaps there's an interest or spark um, and a mutual 
learning from one another. And then I also have mentors that since college that I'm still in touch with. Um, I think just from my personality, I just tend to really gravitate towards people that are smarter than me, wiser than me, <laughs> more successful than me. And so that's, um, you know, that's just been my nature to really want to, um, you know, leverage the expertise of those people as a sounding board. It's huge, isn't it? I mean, I always joke about, I can't remember who said it, but that you should try as often as possible to be the least in the room. Um, and, and I think when you are, you so often can learn more than when you're the one constantly speaking. And it's taken me, of course, a few years to figure that out. I think when you're quite a bit younger, you want to show how smart you are. And then afterwards you realize, man, I know so very little that um, it's better to sit and kind of soak it in. So I think that that network is huge. This is kind of a funny question, but speaking of mentors, this is a topic that seems to come up on a lot of these conversations. And I'm sure it happens to you too, where people will reach out to you and they'll say, will you be my mentor, Diana? And I don't know about you, but for me, it makes me super uncomfortable. I have no idea how to respond because I think mentor is such a, it's such an ill-defined word. Um, and the ask, I have no idea what it means when somebody wants me to be their mentor. So when you were reaching out for these people to guide you, did you actually ask them to be your mentor? Do they even know it? Do you call them something different? What's your process there? No, um, I was said in college, I really, there was some structure um, when I asked my mentor, Carol, to be my mentor. Um, we were very specific meeting twice a month. And I think she helped define those parameters as well. She's like, well, same question. Like, what do you mean by that? You know, mm -hmm. it's like, well, you know, maybe meet for coffee and talk about things. And, and so, um, because, you know, I was in Northern California and she was close, the proximity made it easy for us to meet on a regular basis. But nowadays, you know, uh, my mentee um, lives in Egypt. So wow. it's very hard to get on WhatsApp. And now, you know, uh, she was my mentee about four years ago and now she, I consider her a friend. So we touch base, we catch up, but there's, it's just more difficult for that. And so for me personally, it's been really... Um, now, kind of in the later stages of um, my career, it's more been like reaching out and saying, can we chat about this? I have a specific thing I want to talk to you about. And I never really defined, I don't even think they know that they're my mentor, but I've kind of internally, um, you know, bucketed them in this category that I can really count on them for advice, for, um, you know, even, um, you know, calling out areas of my life that need change you know sometimes it takes someone that can be honest and so i've really drawn apart people uh, upon people that don't just give like advice don't just give accolades but also you know correction like hey perhaps you shouldn't go that route um, and to be really able to create a safe space where mentors um, and advisors can do that yeah <clears throat> i couldn't agree more i think you know, for me, the specific asks, ask is so important, especially, well, you have twofold. If you don't know the person super well, I think the specific ask is so important. Like, I would like your insight on X and to make the ask small, right? Like 15 minutes, 
maybe a cup of coffee, over the phone, whatever. I want to pick your mind on this specific thing. Would you be open to that? And then you kind of crack open the door, right? Just a little bit. And then with the next ask, it gets a little bigger and a little bigger until you might just find yourself with a mentor without ever having to have that conversation of, hey, by the way, will you be my mentor? But for women especially, it's so critical, I believe, because we're communal, Yes. To have some sort of guide in your life. And I don't really use the word mentor, but I would say, you know, like you said, your personal board. I was chatting with another person on this, this podcast who runs the hedge, uh, who's the head of diversity for one of the world's largest asset managers. And, and he talks about his Paul Francisco board. And I've always talked about the CSB board. And so having this group of humans who, if you, I think, haven't ever been in a corporate environment, you probably don't think like this me being in investing, you being in consulting, it's very normal for us to think, okay, you have a board where you have someone for finance, you have someone for legal, you have someone for strategic issues, you have someone for operational issues. Um, and if you can recreate that in your life uh, by asking one small thing at a time, you have a whole room full of open doors to people who can give you insights that you probably cannot find on your own. So this idea of developing a network with people who spark you, like you said, or people who you not only have the values and the mission, but that personal connection, like you'd want to get a beer with them, yeah. I think is, is so valuable because that's the other part is there'll be a lot of people who you just won't, you just don't connect with. You don't want to kick it. You don't want to hang out and life's too short to do business with people you don't like, I, I think. Exactly. Yeah. And so the values, the mission, um, and the connection is just so important, you know, and I think for me, I've always kind of looked upon all three and, um, there's so many people and I, you and I probably both attend so many conferences, so it's mm -hmm. hard to keep in touch with everyone, but the people that you do keep in touch with, you know, I feel like for me personally, it's been so fulfilling, but also so critical to the growth of Nomi Network and the growth of me personally as well. Yes. And I think in this day and age, we're a lot more forgiving with the non-frequent contact, right? You know, we understand that the world is busy. And I think if you have that connection and you establish like who you are as a living being and who I am, and we connect in some way, we may not talk for months or years, but that next connection, that spark kind of rekindles. Um, and so I, I do try to, to, take care and cultivate my network as much as humanly possible, but fully realizing that everybody has a different definition for a friend or for a colleague. Some people require a lot more constant contact and yeah. some people it can be years and you snap right by. Yeah, absolutely. So absolutely. Let's, let's talk about um, partnerships. You, you brought up a little bit corporate partnerships and brand partnerships, but let's talk about it broadly. I am sure in that the name of your company is um, intertwined with network in some ways that partnerships are critical for you. I've found that they're super complex in my business. Everybody wants to talk about collaborations, synergies, leverage, partnerships, but in, in reality, in order to find two groups that work well together, I think you need tons of expectations set up front, a lot of assumptions um, to be drawn out and clarified, and a lot of definitions surrounding it. What do you find when you're looking for, let's say, a corporate partnership or a brand partnership or a governmental partnership? What are like the, the three or five keys 
to finding alignment in a partnership? Yeah. So <clears throat> from the, I would say from the brand perspective, um, you know, for us um, as a smarter, uh, smaller startup, um, you know, in terms of kind of the equity and the value that we have to offer is different. Um, we don't have following of like millions and millions of people, you know, we don't have a well-recognized brand, but we do have really more of the social impact. So it's to really think through like, what do we have to offer for larger brand partnerships? We just secured a partnership with a large cosmetic company that will be announced next year. And so that, you know, really um, for us is a huge win, but also having to think through in the early stages, like what do we have to offer, you know, that is different, um, not just, um, the impact, but also how can we align with their business strategy more closely, given that we're more, you know, social um, and our focus and our mandate is to really serve people that are the most vulnerable, whereas for them, it's to earn a profit. But still, I think there are, there is common ground and there are more levels of um, synergy and goals that can, we can really address, you know, by working with them as well. And then for nonprofit partners that we have on the ground, uh, we have quite a few. It's really thinking about what is their core competency? What do they do well versus what do we do well? What do we do the same of? And how can we, you know, serve more people together and leverage our existing capacity? But one of the tricky challenges of that is really, you know, for every partnership, you really do need dedicated people. So for a startup organization or a company, you know, many partnerships require like an actual person managing those partnerships. Mm. And I think that's where that can kind of go south is when you don't have adequate um, operational and human resources to back up those partnerships. And that's why they're not the most effective because, um, you know, I feel with every partnership, unless it's window dressing, requires really more of a back-end support strategy and execution behind it. And so with our nonprofit partners, uh, we're very clear in terms of what are we offering and what are they offering and how can we work together to achieve a bigger goal or a common goal? I think that structure that you have in place of... Um, having a person to manage some of those partnerships is really key. I've never thought about it systematically like that. I think it's always just come with it in some way, shape, or form that an ownership has been delegated. But to have a have a mandate like that is really powerful um, because what I found is people get really excited, right? And maybe that's just human nature. Yeah. But when a brand gets to work with a company like yours that has major social impact, let's say, um, and is able to turn a, a lipstick um, from a commodity in which there are a million options within a million options within a million color schemes into like a symbol of you know freedom for the end woman or um when you're putting on this lipstick you know to make yourself look more beautiful like you are in actuality beautifying our planet through know me network which you're donating something to like that heartstring that they're able to tug with you is so beautiful that i think a lot of brands jump on that or a lot of partners i'm sure want to get on board with your story but the problem is always that the devil is in the details right mm -hmm. and i found this so seldom with 
or so frequently with my companies that people get really excited about what they want to achieve, but then they don't realize that you really, it's a grind to get there. There is no part of achieving something big without working incredibly hard on it. So I like the idea of like allocating that to one person. And I also like how you talked about almost, it's like, you know, the Oracle of Delphi, like know thyself. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and you talk about that as though know me is a, is a, is a person, which kind of is in your instance, but that you know your brand, what you offer to the end user, but also what you bring to the table. And I think oftentimes we too quickly jump out and start trying to be everything to everyone. And I know even in my brands, I've had to realign multiple times and say, wait a second, I'm apparently not explaining our mission at CSB enough, which is bringing in more diverse and conscious minds into the the powers that be in order to, I think, have a more conscious world and not like all of a sudden getting kind of pulled out because we're working with a corporate sponsor that's really tactical on, I don't know, how to build a website in 24 hours, which could and does align with our mission, but that is not the mission, right? Um, So when you're you're talking about... You talked a little bit about uh, brainstorming, in, not in so many words, but in what is your business strategy and how you know what Nomi does. You come from a world of consulting where I know you guys, you really excel at strategy, critical thinking, um, creative thinking, and that's why businesses bring you in. So what's your process? You're solving complex global problems at Nomi. How do you guys brainstorm and get creative and keep that creativity amidst a very serious business? Do you have a process there? We do. Yeah, we do actually. <coughs> Excuse me. Typically, um, you know, we set our kind of five-year strategic plan. And um, once that's set, um, we're about to embark on another five-year plan. We have the goals and the ideas um, of how we're going to achieve each goals. For example, program goals, um, how to engage retailers, how to increase um, awareness raising products so people can know the message of anti-human trafficking. Um, and so during um, our the beginning of the year, we have our staff retreat. And so I know that you know I might have a lot of great ideas, but my colleague. Um, you know, who sees the world differently might have something a lot more creative and (laughs) powerful to offer. And so during these um, retreats, we're able to really talk through a lot of ideas of how are we going to achieve these strategic goals. And then from that point on, we also bring in like, you know, what are our strengths? What are our weaknesses? What are the opportunities? What are the threats? Opportunities out there, for example, you know, what's changing? The whole ethical fashion movement is really um, now, in my opinion, on an upward kind of peak, you know, and there's a lot of momentum. So how does that trend impact the way that we could perhaps, you know, operate some of our strategies, Yeah, so at these retreats, we're really able to draw um, strategy out, you know, from the team and also from our program staff. They're the people on the ground that see the changes, opportunities, and threats that are happening on the ground. You know, for example, a change of currency, whereas the Indian government just recently decided to take back all $500, $1,000 currencies, and it will be no longer um, active. And so there's a frantic kind of 
mobilization, people all over India to exchange their currency right now. And so those types of changes do impact our programs as well. And so during our annual retreat, we're able to talk through as well as plan for the upcoming year on how to, um, you know, really to be effective and make those changes. That's fascinating. Um, so an instance like that, which I can so relate to, I run a, you know, an international business too. And I've actually had two of my three businesses um, be severely impacted by government regulation and, and changes. Uh, and the tough part about that is you could be doing everything right in a country, I think, and you could be the best in show at whatever it is your business is doing. But if you don't keep your finger on the pulse of what's happening both within the government and um, within your industry, like you talked about the, the trend towards ethical fashion, um, then, then you can kind of get left in the dust. So what about, you know, how do you how do you prepare for those type of events and what sort of, I don't know, relationships do you have with, with lobbyists and with the government in order to kept, be kept abreast and maybe be a step or two ahead of major sweeping changes? Yeah, that's a good question. So yeah, we're very much um, in the countries that we operate, um, you know, at least twice a year, we will meet with, government agencies, we will meet with local nonprofits um, and really be at a posture of learning from them and seeing where the synergies are. And so we have these learning trips where we do that in both countries. Um, and then our program managers on the ground really have kind of a pulse of the ground and what are some things coming at the local level that we should be aware of. And so in their monthly report, to us, they will state that. And so that really helps us kind of keep tabs. You know, of course, there's always unforeseen circumstances, you know, cases of civil unrest that rise, you know, we have no control over that. And that's kind of where sometimes it could be a little daunting. Um, but nevertheless, you know, that's sort of the way that we try to really understand the threats and opportunities on the ground. And at the state side level, we really are at the front forefront of conversation uh, about ethical fashion, talking to brands, hosting um, events in partnership with larger organizations like the Luxury Council, Concordia, mm -hmm. and really um, even, you know, having opportunities to share at the White House and other places about what we're learning in the field and really ways that brands can engage on the subject of ethical fashion and anti-human trafficking. Yeah, and we'll make sure to link Concordia and Luxury Council because those are such great initiatives for corporations looking to have a positive impact on the world. And, you know, on this podcast, we, we typically are thinking about the private sector. We're thinking about corporate America, but increasingly, and I see it, see it even here in, in Dallas, Texas, where there's, you know, much more traditional type mentality on business than perhaps on the coasts, you see that brands who are able to have a sustainable initiative to have a mission-driven uh, purpose towards their profits mm -hmm. are gaining huge momentum. And, and that might just be a, that might be a generational trend that, you know, we as, I don't know, I guess I'm Gen X, millennial, somewhere in there. Um, we actually want to feel like not only are the things that we're doing for a living impactful and, and interesting to us, but also the things that we buy 
we don't want to go out and buy things that we feel are leaving a negative footprint. Um, so I think if you can line up with somebody else's platform, like a Concordia or a Luxury Council, and use their resources to get out your message as a brand, it's huge. Um, let's talk about, so some of these processes, you said you have seven employees, right, Diana? Stateside, yes. Stateside. Okay. And so you have seven people kind of managing this very big uh, segment of the world and lots of moving parts. I struggle all the time in my business, which is, you know, we have, you know, we have a team of lean, like 10 in my um, investment business and then contractors and, and joint venture um, participants internationally. And then in my other two businesses, you know, five and five. So, so maybe altogether 20 actual employees and let's say like 50 contractors, something like that. But what I struggle with sometimes leading a firm is how do you manage all of the details and how do you make sure that the stuff you're asking to get done actually gets done. And there have been a few things which I can share afterwards that I've found have made a huge difference. I still don't know if they're the right things, but they actually allow me to sleep occasionally. <laughs> but um, for you, like, how do you keep it all in line? How do you make sure that people are doing what they say that they're going to be doing? And organizationally, how do you manage or lead global teams? Yeah. So um, usually at the beginning of the year, we have job descriptions and then we have actual projects that everyone's working on. And so typically we have, um, I meet with, you know, our program managers, not all program staff on the ground because it's our program manager's job to really have a organizational structure in place. And so I work with them to identify their top priorities. And so on a monthly basis from the field, they report back to me on what's being done. Mm -hmm. And then for my team, in New York City, we have weekly meetings where we report back on the status of our projects as well as the challenges, um, you know, as part of kind of a weekly routine. Um, and so I can rest assured that these things are getting done. And usually the projects really stem directly from our operational plan. And so that is what um, each person really has a focus in their core area. And so sometimes, you know, as an entrepreneur organization, um, one of the pitfalls is you have many people wearing multiple hats. <laughs> and so if one person is working on, you know, so many different things that aren't really, um, that are just so sporadic in nature, you know, like planning a holiday party, as well as, you know, managing the um, execution of our, uh, of our, of, of our um, annual gala, as well as working with volunteers, as well as, you know, um, there really needs to be kind of more delineation. And so that's kind of where things can slip through the cracks is as an entrepreneur organization, myself being used to wearing multiple hats and now having more and more staff, it's become actually a lot easier because as long as um, you know, we're accountable to each other. We're able to support one another when there are challenges and hiccups. Um, we grow as an organization and we strengthen the organization and we build team capacity. So that's something that I've been very focused on is to build team capacity. So each person on the Nomi team can do what I do, can talk about Nomi even when they're at an event. Um, you know, our admin assistant can talk about Nomi Network. Mm -hmm. So that's something that um, as an as a organization that's 
our culture and it's a strength that we can you know anyone can talk about Nomi but it also could be a weakness in the sense that we're now every person is doing a lot of different things and that's something we're working on streamlining as well. Yeah and what about you know do you have so like to get really tactical so when you're doing these weekly meetings and um, the communication monthly with your project managers, is it through a system? Are you using like, you know, an Asana or some sort of project management system? And if, if not, like how did you build that structure? For somebody who's listening, who's let's say never managed before and they create this successful business and now they're trying to build out the structure, what are like the, the couple of key tenants there in order to, to build it? And what sort of infrastructure do you build it on? Is it just conference calls? Is it just an email? Or is it on Google Drive? Or is it an Evernote? Like, how do you specifically outline? Yeah, that's a great question. So we use, um, we use Skype. <laughs> yep. Skype a lot mm -hmm. for our field calls. And um, for our team meetings, we're all at the office. So if I'm traveling, I'll just dial in. But the majority, um, we're all in New York City. So meetings happen live and we use doodle a lot for scheduling with um uh, doodle is a great platform i think to get everyone's schedule aligned oh um, i'll link that i don't know that one uh doodle.com and mm -hmm. um we also started using smart sheets it's mm -hmm. a program management system um it's great so we use uh, for many projects and it actually allows you to also create departments in smart sheets so that's been a really uh, helpful tool and Salesforce <laughs> Salesforce has really been great and kind of we integrated we started using that system last year and it's been really helpful in helping us manage our contacts as well as our um, the different people and stakeholders part of the organization yeah, I hear great things about that one. Our CRM is uh, super old school. It's a proprietary system that we had code for the back end. But um, we, being in a highly regulated industry like finance, although there must be some portions of yours like that, um, we wanted to keep a lot of it in-house. But the problem is you lose so much cutting-edge innovation when you you can't have the constant upgrades, let's say that a Salesforce would allow, um, so it's it's such a challenge, at least for me, for us to integrate innovation with our current business um, and with the fact that we have to be very reactive, responding to things every day. Um, and so I think sometimes it's easy to get in the details and not pull back up and see the 30,000 foot view. But you know, for us, we use, I'm, I'm pretty big on, um, on task lists. So we use, I like web-based tools and, and, and apps. So we use Asana a lot. And then we're kind of, I mean, we keep it stupid simple because we, we manage um, a lot of team members who you know, haven't used technology a ton before. And so we use pretty much like Google Drive almost constantly for everything that's not super sensitive. Um, and just having those small tweaks as opposed to managing it all via email, which is what we did before, has been, has been really big for us. So like we're coming up to sort of the close here, but I wanted to get like kind of a rapid fire from you here a little bit. Um, so, and I want them to kind of 
know you. And we're going to, we're going to link know me and more about what you're doing and some of the bags and the way that people can help. Um, so let's start with one quick thing, which is if they want to know more about know me and about you, what are the best places to go find you? Um, the best place would be our website. It's just nomi, N-O-M-I, network.org. Mm-hmm. And um, from that site, you can also link to our e-commerce site where you'll find our beautiful, vibrant products. <laughs> I love it. And um, and what about, what social media are you <clears throat> most active on? Is it Facebook? Um, yes, we're most active on Facebook and we also are on Twitter as well. So and Facebook- all at Nomi Network? Yes. And it's N-O-M-I. We'll also link that, but Nomi Network. Um, And then let's, so let's get out just a few little snippets from you of some tweetables for you. So if uh, we talk a lot in rapid fire about, um, I think for myself personally, I am big on um, going and using the words of others to inspire myself. And so every time I'm feeling stuck or lost or overwhelmed or daunted by a task, um, I have sort of a Bible of quotes that I go to, if you will, that just sort of speak to me. So do you have, you know, a quote that you kind of go back to, a mantra, something that keeps you driving when you are out there literally trying to save people from some of the most atrocious things happening? Yeah, lately, um, it's really been um, a lot. I've been thinking about it a lot. Um, perfect love casts out fear. And um, a lot of the countries we operate in, there's just a lot of, you know, challenges, security challenges. And so that's been really some my go-to. And that comes actually from the Bible. So um, it's been something that I've held very dear to keep me going. I I absolutely love it. I'm going to write that one down and we'll link it as well. And what about, is there some sort of book or resource or reference that you go back to continuously? Um, Yes, there are um, several books. I've been reading this book called Let's Do Lunch Together. It's about (laughs) building relationships, um, particularly with donors. So I often go to that. Um, And um, I've also been, during my sabbatical, um, I read a book called Homeboy Industries, and it's a really powerful book uh, about a social entrepreneur that started cafes as well as um, nonprofit that helps those that are formerly incarcerated. And so he's been just such a great inspiration to me. His name is Gregory Boyle. Um, so that recently is a book that I've kind of referenced and gone back to. Uh, Perfect. Well, we will make sure to link all of those. I just want to thank you so much, Diana, for being on. And I can't wait to go and get myself a little Nomi swag. Oh, we'll have to send you something. No, no, no. I'm buying it, obviously. (laughs) Yeah, we'll have to send I really appreciate it. It's great to connect with you. And I hope to meet you in person sometime. Do visit us. 